You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, we are in a study in the Gospel of John, and we have finally come to it. We're going to be this morning in the second half of the second chapter of the Gospel of John. As I've been thinking about, planning for, and praying about this passage for this morning, I've been reminded uh, over and over again of a very wonderful, fictitious passage of literature that I think really sort of illustrates and brings this to HD vivid quality. Now, those of you who've spent any time with me at all might know that I'm kind of a fantasy geek. I love all things written by Tolkien or C.S. Lewis and all that kind of genre. And as I've been thinking about this passage, there's a particular section of one of C.S. Lewis's books from the Chronicles of Narnia series called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in this particular book, we, we are introduced again to two intrepid young adventurers, Lucy and Edmund, and they're off on high adventure. And in the story, they come to an expanse of green grass. But it's not just any green grass. It is, it is the greenest, most lush, vibrant, vivid, plush green grass ever. And it just goes on for miles and miles and forever. It's the greenest green you can imagine, except for one little white speck. One little white fleck way, way off in the distance in this sea of green. It's a tiny white pinprick. And they can't even quite fix their eyes on it. They see it in the distance. They wonder what it is. Why is this one little fleck of white just stuck in the middle of this great green sea? And being adventurous as they are, they take off through the lush green grass to find out what this is. And they train their eyes on it and they can't quite make it out. And so they draw closer and closer until finally it comes into focus. It comes into view and they can see it. It's a lamb. A pure, white, spotless little lamb. They see it. And the lamb says, good morning, which all lambs do. And the lamb is cooking them breakfast, which all lambs should do in my estimation. This lamb is cooking them breakfast. It's the greatest breakfast ever. Unless, of course, you happen to be the fish that is being prepared for breakfast. Not so fun for the fish. But the lamb is cooking breakfast. Obviously, C.S. Lewis referring to the 21st chapter of John, where in his post-resurrection body, Jesus encounters his disciples on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee, and he cooks them breakfast. And so Lucy and Edmund approach this white lamb that's cooking breakfast, and they engage him in conversation, and they say, we are searching for the country of Aslan. Can you help us find the country of Aslan? How will we get there from our own world? And the lamb begins to speak to them and wax eloquent. And as C.S. Lewis tells it, as they're listening to him speak and as they're eating this delicious breakfast, Lewis writes that his pure, white, snowy, fluffy wool begins to flush into tawny gold and he's transformed in front of them and he is, in fact, Aslan the lion. And he speaks to them about the dangers that lie ahead and that there is a river to cross, but they are not to fear because he is the builder of bridges. And light, C.S. Lewis writes, scatters from his mane. 
It's the whole reason I grew a beard for this morning is to make that reference right there. And light scattered from his mane. You see, what Lewis is telling us is the lamb is the lion. The lamb is the lion. The lamb of God is also the lion of Judah. In Revelation chapter six, we are told that there will come a time when the people who are defiant to God and his redeemer will fear the wrath of the lamb doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense until you understand that the Lamb of God is the Lion of Judah. And this morning, we get to see that happen precisely. Now, we've been studying John for a few weeks, and we've learned a lot about John, uh, a lot about Jesus from John thus far. And this passage in particular this morning is intended by John to help us think more clearly, to feel more deeply about this Jesus, to think and feel about Jesus the way God thinks and feels about Jesus. Otherwise, we'll have this wrong, little, small, portable, pocket-sized Jesus who we just want to do some stuff for us every now and again. But that's not the Jesus of the pages of Scripture. This passage is trying to convince us of something. This passage is telling us something very profound, and it's also our big idea for the morning, and it goes like this. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the temple, or or maybe I can sort of amplify this ever so slightly and say it this way, Jesus is the temple, or or maybe Jesus is the temple, Or, or Jesus is the temple. Guess what? Jesus is the temple. Are you following me? That's the idea. It's a profound, earth shattering, heaven moving concept. Jesus is the temple. Now, We are in the Gospel of John, and John is writing pure propaganda. He makes no bones about it. He is trying to convert you. He is trying to convince you that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Not God-ish, not God-like. He is God of God. He is the very essence of God. John writes in chapter 20, Verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the entire theme of the Gospel of John, so that you will believe. Now this is our fourth study in the Gospel of John thus far. We started the first week looking at the prologue, the first 18 verses where John detonates a nuclear bomb and says, it's God in the flesh. He is a person. It's a man. All of the power of the God of the cosmos walking around in a person. It's him. He is the Lamb of God. He is the light of the world. All of these things. And he tabernacled among us. Then the second half of the first chapter of John is Jesus calling all of his disciples to him, being born witness of, and saying, I am Jacob's ladder. I am that which builds the bridge between heaven and earth, which connects God to man. Last week, we looked at the wedding at Cana, where Jesus transforms the water into wine. Today, we're going to see another story that's going to have the same effect. Last week, we hear a story, and they believe. Today we're going to get another story and they will believe. That is John's pattern. He tells you a story and people believe. He tells another story and people believe. Now they don't believe all over again as if for the first time unto salvation, but his disciples believe ever increasingly and they see Jesus more accurately, more appropriately, more according to the picture of scripture and how God himself sees Jesus. That's what we're after today. 
So I'm going to read the entire passage. I'm going to begin reading in John chapter 2, verses 12 to the end of the chapter. John chapter 2, verses 12 and following. John says, after this, this is after the wedding at Cana where he miraculously transforms water into wine. He went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed stayed there for a few days. The pastor of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and indeed no one to bear witness, needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. This is God's word. We're gonna see this morning that Jesus cleanses the temple, Jesus claims the temple because, after all, Jesus is the temple. So I want to just walk right back through this passage rather briefly, unpack some key points there, and then we'll see if we can apply it. Back now to chapter 2, verse 12. After this, after this, this is the wedding at Cana. Cana is a backwater rural nowhere. It is about 16 miles north-northeast of Capernaum meaning Capernaum is on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, but Cana is set off from the Sea of Galilee, just back sort of in the sticks. It's a rural nowhere where Jesus miraculously transforms the waters of religiosity and separation and purification into the wine of fellowship, breaking down separation and distinction. But it happens in relative obscurity and privacy. After this, Jesus takes his his family and his disciples to Capernaum. This becomes sort of his base of operations. John's not doing a whole lot else, but this is just a transition in his narrative. Jesus has his mother, Mary, with her. Apparently at this point, Joseph is dead. His biological half-brothers, perhaps half-sisters as well, and his newly called disciples. John's only gonna tell us about seven of them. We know from the other gospel writers there was more. But he takes them and they sit for a few days in Capernaum. After this, the narrative is going to change dramatically. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now there's a lot going on here. The Passover of the Jews. John starts this new section by telling us about the Passover. Now John is going to tell us that Jesus actually experiences three different Passovers. 
Now we know that Jesus is going to have experienced many other Passovers. From the age of 20 on, every Jewish man has to go to Jerusalem at least three times a year, if not more, if there's any way at all he can make it. So Jesus would have gone, but John's going to document three Passovers in chapter two, chapter six, and chapter 12. This, by the way, is why we think that Jesus's earthly ministry is three years long, because John gives us three different Passovers. We also happen to know that Passover of that time and that year would have been precisely April 7th of the year 30 AD. With precision and specificity, we're almost certain of that, which means, I want to remind you, this is not merely a legend nor a myth. This happened in history, April 7th, AD 30. Jesus comes into Jerusalem at Passover. Now, Passover is the commemoration feast of what happens in the Exodus, 15 hundred years prior. It is the biggest festival, the biggest feast in Israel, even bigger than Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where for 1,500 years, the nation of Israel has celebrated what God did. God takes the Lamb of God, instructs the people to put it to death. Its blood will be shed innocently for their sake. They will daub it on their doorposts, and the angel of death will pass over them, and they will not receive judgment. God does this by grace. And for 1,500 years, they celebrate this. Or at least that's what they were supposed to have been doing. I mean, who can say how authentic they were actually doing this at that point? But John's already recorded in chapter 1 that John the Baptist has proclaimed that this Jesus is the Lamb of God. And so now the ultimate Lamb of God comes into Jerusalem at Passover. What's going to happen? John tells us that it's the Passover of the Jews. I don't think it's because his readers and hearers in Ephesus have no idea what Passover is. I think they know they would have been taught by this point. I think John is telling us this is the Passover of the Jews because we as Christians do not celebrate Passover because it is finished, ultimately, utterly, finally, and fully finished in Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb. So Jesus leaves this rural nowhere in Cana, and he journeys up in elevation. It's actually to the south, but he goes to Jerusalem at Passover. It's the busiest place in the world at this point. We think at this time Jerusalem may have had 100 to 150,000 people living in it and around it. But at Passover, we have from multiple historians that Jerusalem swells to as many as 2.5 million people. It's an absolute crush and throng of humanity. Some of you went to the East Texas State Fair. Not even close, okay? May have felt like it. Less corn dogs in Passover, but there was a whole lot of people crushed into one very small area. One month before Passover, Israel begins to work on all of the roads to fix all the bridges to provide extra accommodations and booths so that the people who are coming into Jerusalem will have a place to stay and they can get there. It is an enormous deal. And into this very public, very central, very crowded, very chaotic scene comes Jesus, having just left this very small situation in Cana. Now, in the temple, let me read what's going on here. He says in verse 14, in the temple he found. And the Greek word for found or to find is Eureka. So the text is a little bit clever here. It's Eureka, he found. And the point is where he found it. It's emphatic, in the temple he finds this. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. In the temple. 
Well, first of all, I take it that that's the central issue with which Jesus takes issue is that all of this is happening in the temple. But before I get to what's going on there, I need to address the thing about this passage ever so briefly. John records this cleansing of the temple during the first week of Jesus' earthly ministry. Matthew and Mark and Luke all put it in the last week of his ministry some three years later. So what's going on? Well, there are some commentators who will say, well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are writing chronologically, and it actually happened in the last week of his earthly ministry. But John is writing theologically. So it's the same event. John just decides to put it there because, you know, it's 50 years later, and John's writing theologically, doctrinally, where the other three are writing chronologically. I understand that theory, and I disagree patently mostly because most of the scholars that I read, most of the guys that I like to study, um, well, I like them because they agree with me. And so I, I really kind of like them a whole lot more. The two cleansing of the temple accounts seem to me very, very different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about Jesus saying, you have created a den of robbers when this is supposed to be a house of prayer. And they all three say the same thing and it looks very different. That's not what Jesus says on this occasion. Even though it's bizarre to our 21st century eyes and ears to think, well, he does the same thing twice, that is precisely how I take it. John does have a theological reason for placing this and not mentioning the last one. The other three writers have a chronological point for mentioning the last one, but not the first one. As strange as it might seem to us, I actually take it that these two cleansings of the temple both occur because Jesus is the temple. Incidentally, when he does drive out the animals and kick over the money-changing tables, how long do you think they were out of business? 30, 40 minutes, perhaps? It was, I'm sure, back to business as usual very, very soon after Jesus does what Jesus does. So I think there's too much evidence to suggest this is actually occurring two separate occasions. So back to the temple. What is it? Why is it such a big deal? Why is Jesus so vexed that this is happening in the temple? Well, the temple for Jews is the center of the universe, it is the place where people can come and connect and commune with the God of the universe. Well, I mean, it was until under the writings of the prophet Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord departs the temple. And one of the most tragic speeches God gives to Israel, I will leave. I do not want to. My presence does not want to depart. I love you. I want to be near you. I want to be with you. I want to have you with me. Let me stay. And they defy repeatedly. They will not bend the knee. They will not rightly and regularly recognize him as their God. They simply descend into mechanical observance of their liturgical offerings. And Jesus says, I don't want, or God says, I don't want that. I want you to be here with me. And they will not listen. And so the glory of the Lord departs the temple. And yet, Ezekiel also says, but one day, the glory of the Lord will return. We just so happen to know that it was April 7th, A.D., 30, the glory of the Lord returned. See, the temple was where sinful man could come and because of the shed blood of sacrifice have right standing before a holy God. And what we're gonna find out, of course, is that Jesus himself is the temple. See, this all started way back during the time of the Exodus. God commands Moses and the children of Israel to build the tabernacle, a rather ornate camping tent, actually. And when they finished it and they set it up, the glory of God himself would descend and inhabit the tabernacle, and it would house the Ark of the Covenant. 
About 500 years later, King Solomon builds the ultimate, massive, glorious, splendid temple. And we're told that after Solomon builds it and he prays to commission it, the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah, actually dwells in and inhabits the temple. And it's so brilliant and radiant, the priests can't even be around the building to do their jobs. But then 500 years later, the people have fallen into disobedience and distance. And so the Babylonians come and under King Nebuchadnezzar, they tear the temple down stone from stone and it lies in complete and total ruin until after the Babylonian exile. When a guy named Zerubbabel comes back out of exile and he sort of kind of rebuilds the temple. It's a sorry, shabby shadow of the original temple. It's very much smaller. There's no windows, no Wi-Fi. It's pretty poor. And the people moan and they groan, oh, this temple is not nearly like what we used to have. But it's all they have for another 450 years or so until finally King Herod the Great remodels it. By the way, that was his name for himself. Nobody else was calling him Herod the Great. That was on his own business card he had printed up himself. You can, I guess, do that when you rebuild the temple. But he refurbishes, remodels, renovates, reopens the temple. And it takes many decades to do this. Into that scene walks Jesus. Now this temple had a series of concentric barriers that were intended to divide people. The outermost court is called the Court of Gentiles, where people from all over the world, different nations could come and encounter the God of Israel. In the book of Isaiah, some 700 years prior, Isaiah says that is where the Gentiles will come to the temple and they will find the God of Israel and he will be a blessing to all of those nations when they come to the temple. The Gospel of Mark says the same thing. The court of Gentiles is where the nations come to receive blessing from the God of Israel. Then the next section was the court of women, specifically Jewish women, where Jewish women could come a little bit further in and have closer access to God. Beyond that was a a barrier dividing wall that had the court of Jewish men. A little further in, you had the sacrificial altar, the laver, and all the things that would happen by the priests. Then you would go inside to the inner sanctuary, the holy place, where the table of showbread and the lampstand were finally behind the curtain into the holy of holies where the presence of God himself was supposed to dwell in, over the Ark of the Covenant. Except by the time of Jesus, we're pretty certain the Ark of the Covenant is no longer there. So Jesus walks up to Temple Mount in this throng of humanity and Eureka right in the temple court of the Gentiles. Well, there's no Gentiles. It's all of this noise. It's interesting what has occurred. Worship is big business. See, a Jewish family was required to make a journey to Jerusalem at least three times a year. But you couldn't show up empty-handed. You had to make and give sacrifice before a holy God for all sorts of different things, for fellowship offerings, for sin offerings, for willful sin offerings, for all of these things, for peace offerings. You had to have sacrifice. But if you're a part of the diaspora, those who have been scattered all over the known world, you're coming from Italy or you're coming from North Africa, it's very difficult to show up with a pigeon in good shape or with a sheep in good shape or with an oxen in good shape. They just have a tendency to go south on you. And so all of this commerce is developed to offer people the opportunity to just buy their animals there. And initially, that's not a problem. You'll notice Jesus never rebukes the pilgrims and the travelers. He's rebuking the merchants. For a very long time, the entire Kidron Valley, the valley that is to the east of Temple Mount, all the way up the Mount of Olives during the Passover month, all of that area was intended 
to house all of this merchandise and commerce. It was there. But then these people realized, hey, we could make a lot more money if we simply moved it into the place where the Gentiles are supposed to be because we don't care about them anyway. And Jesus walks up and he experiences and sees all of this. They are in the court of the Gentiles. Not only that, but he sees all these money changers. You see, during the month of Passover, you had to bring a temple tax. Every single person had to pay a temple tax and it was rich. But they wouldn't accept just any coin. You couldn't bring a Roman denarius. You couldn't bring a drachma from Syria. You had to have a Tyrian shekel, which was pure silver. And if you didn't have a Tyrian shekel, well, they would take two of your denarii and exchange it for one shekel. As much as a 12% to 17% increase. And the coffers were purely packed with wealth. We know at one point during the intertestamental period, someone sacks the temple and robs the coffers and they take an equivalent to $20 million in our currency today and it didn't even dent the treasury. These people were profiting enormously from all of this, tremendously. And so Jesus arrives to see all of this going on, this place where peoples of the earth are supposed to come and commune with God and it's more than he can stand and the Lamb of God flashes his lion-like zeal. Let's watch again what happens. In verse 15, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, I have read so many different attempts of people who have tried to explain this either completely away by saying, oh, really, it was just a handful of straw and he was just kind of shaking it at people. Like just sweet little mild Jesus, like maracas. And then I've heard other people say, oh no, this is a fragilum, this is like a scourge, and he's just bowed up and just whipping people nearly to death. Well, I kind of prefer that side of it. I don't think that's what actually happens. Clearly that John is telling us Jesus is driving them just to get out. This is the place where Gentiles are supposed to be able to come and find God. But Jesus is driving out the animals and he kicks over these tables. Can you just imagine all the different piles of coinage that are stacked up and Jesus just throws them all over? No one's stopping him, incidentally. I think they see that this man has some kind of presence, some kind of authority. And Jesus is destroying the dividers. Just like at the wedding at Cana. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, Jesus takes that which separates and divides and distinguishes it and he transforms it into fellowship. And they'll do the same exact thing here. All of these walls and barriers that divide and separate, Jesus destroys it. In other words, I take it, this is Jesus putting an end to all human religion, if you will. Jesus is saying, I will be Jacob's ladder, not just to the nation of Israel, but to all people. All people should have access to God and I will be the one that provides it. He asserts his authority in the temple and says, remove all that should not be here. By the way, I've had that experience where I realized Jesus is saying, hey, this doesn't belong. It's time for that to go. And I clutch and I cling because I like it, but it does not belong. Jesus is asserting his authority saying, this is how people are to connect with my Father, the one true God. This is the end of all strivings. Why is Jesus so vexed? Because every other human religion ever is essentially all the same. It's all about what you have to do, what you can achieve, what you can obtain, what you must strive to accomplish. And what's the great scorecard of that religion? Money. 
Because if you're really doing what you're supposed to be doing, then whatever God you confess is supposed to bless you monetarily and financially. That's how you know who the good people are, the righteous people, is because you do a bunch of stuff and your gods bless you. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not having that. That's not how God works. That's not how this goes. Jacques Deneuve, this great French philosopher said, Jesus does not come and add his religion to the smorgasbord of world religions. He tumps over the buffet and offers only his construct of faith. Every other world religion, what you must do and how people profit from it. Jesus says, no, my house will not be that house. And so his disciples understand something, only they understand it later. He says in verse 16, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Only later did they understand. At the time that this happens, it does not occur to them. They simply don't have a clue. I mean, come on, if you're the disciples, just a few days earlier, you're at a wedding at Cana, and they run out of wine, and Jesus ratchets up the party by producing the greatest wine ever. Now it's Passover, baby. What's he going to do? Whoa, he just grabbed a whip and is beating people. That's not what I saw was coming. The disciples don't understand. Even though they've seen this, they don't get it. It requires the Holy Spirit to illumine the scriptures for them to truly understand. Only later did they understand, oh, Jesus is doing that thing from Psalm 69, verse 9. One of the seven great messianic psalms of the Psalter where David says, because I am passionate for you, all of my enemies, all of my opponents, all of my adversaries are trying to kill me. Jesus says in the temple courts, oh yeah, my devotion, my passion, my zeal as the Lamb of God, now lion-like, is going to get me killed. And his disciples now understand it. So that's the temple cleansed. Now John's going to move us into the temple claimed. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? The Jewish leaders are obviously roused by all the turmoil, and yet it's not such a mob that it calls out the Romans from Fortress Antonia to come and put down all of the turmoil. But the Jewish leaders want to know, who, who are you? We've been waiting for a prophet. We've been wanting, we've been watching for God to speak. Is it you? Give us a sign. <laughs> Listen, If you're Jesus, what do you do? I mean, you've just transformed water to wine. If if I'm there and they ask me for a sign, I'm going full Gandalf here. I'm doing fireworks. I'm going Dumbledore. There's there's all kinds of explosions and butterflies. It's going to be awesome. But, But this is no wizard. This is God. And he will not be summoned by men to perform parlor tricks. This is God. He will give no defense of his authority in this way at this time because that never fully finally converts a single person they want a sign they understand that he does have some authority jesus answered them verse 19 destroy this temple and in three days i will raise it up i said this last week that every time john gives us Uh, a story there's always an immediate meaning and John also has a higher or a deeper spiritual truth this is why we know that because Jesus says destroy this temple where he is standing and in three days I will raise it up and then John explains it oh but he was talking about the temple of his body now Jesus says yes you want a sign here is your sign 
tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it. By the way, had they actually torn down the physical structure? He could have. They would not have, so he did not. But that would have been an incredible sign. Oh, but you want a sign? You want a sign, really? You're going to put me to death and then I'm going to live again. The ultimate sign. And you still will not believe. See, signs never converted a single person fully and finally. They totally missed the temple. He says, destroy this temple. Why? Because they were destroying it. The temple was the place where people were to come and connect and commune with God, and they had turned it into a profit-sharing scheme. Oh, they had a God all right, but it was the shekel. You are destroying the temple. But I tell you what, I will take it up again. I don't know who your hero is, but any person who can lay down his own life and he himself take it up again himself, now that's a God. Many people died, and Jesus even raised some of them back to life himself, and then they died again. But Jesus says in chapter 10 of John, nobody takes my life, I lay it down, and I take it back up again. Now that's divine power. This has been a part of God's plan all along. The leaders didn't understand. Ha 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 ha, the group think is on. Ha ha ha, look, this place is awesome. You think you can do better? And Jesus says, oh, something way better has come. I am the temple. You have destroyed this one. You will destroy this one. But I will take this one back up again. I am the temple. I am the place where people who are far from God can come to God because of a bloody sacrifice of an innocent to satisfy the wrath of a holy God, and it's me. See, John is so brilliant. We're only in chapter 2, and already he said that Jesus is God. He tabernacled. He tented among us. He camped in our neighborhood. Jesus is the light of the world. He shined in our darkness. He, he shined in our presence. Jesus is the word. He is the expression. He is the exegesis of God. Jesus is the lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. At Passover, Jesus is Jacob's ladder. He draws heaven to earth and God to man. Jesus is the temple. He is the place where God accepts mankind. It's a human being. John makes no bones. He wants us to understand and believe. But John's going to tell us something even more interesting. Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised, not before, only three plus years later, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus has spoken. Story of what happened, and the disciples believed. Story of what happened and the disciples believed. Again, not all over for the first time unto salvation, but they saw Jesus more clearly, more deeply. This is why John is writing, so that we also as disciples will see Jesus more accurately, more clearly, and more deeply. Well, very quickly, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Apparently he was doing more confirmatory signs defending, he would say a thing, and then he would do a thing, and he would say a thing, and he would do a thing. And people believed it up to a point. But Jesus, verse 24, on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. They trusted, but he didn't trust them. He knew that all they were hungry for was their kind of Christ, their meaning of Messiah one who would perform for them, who would feed them, who would eliminate the Romans. But Jesus is going, you don't understand. I'm here for the Romans. 
You have set up shop in such a way that excludes the Romans from coming to me, so I will go to them. Because Jesus himself is the temple. Well, that brings me then to three very quick points of application. How are we going to take away the second half of John chapter 2? The first point's pretty simple. You've already heard it. It goes like this. Jesus is the temple. It's Him. He Himself is the person and the provider of access to God. And there is no other entry point. Jesus is Himself the shed blood of sacrifice that gives people the potential of having right standing before a holy God and being in His presence. Now yes, Later, Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians 6 that the church is the temple, and so it is. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. While it's true, that's not what this text is describing. See, Jesus is talking about himself. The church was never torn down and destroyed and then rebuilt. That's not what Jesus is talking about. I can't tell you how many commentators are read this. Oh, Jesus is talking about the birth of the church. No, he's not. Not yet. That'll come a little bit later on. He's addressing Israel at the close of that age. And he's saying to them, I am making the temple accessible to all people. What you should have done, I will now do. Make it available to everybody. And I don't want anybody profiting from it. Imagine just the heart of Jesus as as it's stirred, as he sees this spectacle. Perhaps there's a young Gentile man walking through Jerusalem because he's heard all of the chaos happening at Passover and he wonders, what is this all really about? I've heard rumors of this people, this Israel, who, who, whose God apparently rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. They were hopeless and helpless and hapless and he brought them into this land. I've heard stories of how he parted the Red Sea and he preserved them as a people despite all their disobedience, despite all their defiance. He, he kept them and he fought battles for them and he established a kingdom for them and he, and he gave them vineyards and he gave them crops and he gave them livestock. Despite all their disobedience, he loved them. And they went into exile and they did not cease to exist. He preserved them and brought them home again. I wonder what this God of Israel is all about. And now I see that the Roman Empire has come in. After the Babylonians, after the Persians, after the Medes, after the Greeks, now the Romans are here. And this people persists. I'm so curious about this God of Israel. And then he walks into the court and he hears all of this bleating by the sheep and this mooing and lowing from oxen and all the the crinkle of change on tables and merchants screaming at one another arguing disagreeing over exchange rates and he goes oh oh it's like every other religion in the world and he walks away forever and the lamb of god becomes lion-like because he cares for all people and so jesus says no longer No longer will someone have to come to this temple. I am the temple and I will go to every person, every place at all times because Jesus himself is the temple. That's the first point. Second point, it's also pretty simple. It goes like this. This is not the temple. Jesus is the temple. This is not the temple. Now, by now, our little secret is out. We have a coffee shop on the first floor. It's true. Perhaps you've seen it. It's called the Foundry. And it is a business. So I hear it all the time. Maybe you have, maybe you have not, but I hear it all the time from well-meaning people in other denominations, other churches go, oh my goodness, you guys have a coffee shop. Money changers in the temple. Fortunately, I'm in the worst cardiovascular shape of my life, so I really can't brawl and scuffle. So I just kind of let it go. And then I explain to them, hey, well, that's, that's, that's cute, but this is not the temple. Well, you know what I mean. I mean, it's a church. It's the house of the Lord. And you're, you're running a business in the house of the Lord. And I go, hmm. 
saint the temple. The church building. It's where the church meets because the church is people. And this is the new covenant community of the Spirit that meets in this brick and mortar. This ain't the temple. Jesus is the temple. It's, it's, it's totally different. Jesus is furious that in the temple of the day, people were setting up divisions and dividers and boundaries and barriers keeping some people out and allowing only a few people in. That is precisely the opposite of what we're doing here. The foundry is by God's grace an invitation to the public to come in so that they can encounter the God that has done for us what we pray he will do for them. It's not about setting up some place where they can't come and we will stay and enjoy our little espressos. No, 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 no. This is where we invite the public in, bring them up and send them out because that's the story of the church. All distinguishing barrier and boundary has been destroyed. There is no way any of you would have anything to do with any of the rest of you were it not for the gospel. We're not trying to profit. And by the way, when you get asked, just so you know, all of our proceeds go to mission and outreach. And we budget generosity right into the balance sheet, right into our accounting goes generosity where we give away as much as we possibly can. And it's glorious. We are not changing money in the temple because this isn't the temple. Jesus is the temple. This is not the temple. Point number three, we are the temple. You got it? Jesus is the temple. This is not the temple. We are the temple. Clear? Let me help. We are the temple. A little bit later on in this gospel, John's going to help us encounter a woman at the well, or if you read it really carefully, a woman at an espresso machine. It's pretty much what it says. There she is. She She's, she's not been a, a nice person and Jesus knows everything about her and she deflects. And Jesus says to her, oh, there will come a time and in fact has come when you won't worship on this mountain or on that mountain. Instead, you will worship in spirit and in truth. Everywhere you go, you will have the opportunity to regularly and rightly recognize your God because that's what worship is contemplating his value, his worth, his glory, and his goodness. We are in Christ. The Apostle Paul will come along later in 1 Corinthians 6 and say, don't you know that we are the temple? You, plural, you are the temple, the demonstration of the showplace of the glory of God. You want to know what God's like? You've got to go to church and see the grace of God that would tolerate people like you and you even me, and bring us together, not just as brothers and sisters, but as sons, firstborn sons of God Most High. That manifests the glory of God. What the world needs is people who worship in spirit and in truth. But here's what I know. You and I won't do it. We'll maybe see this passage. We'll think perhaps a little bit differently about Jesus, but we'll go home. We'll have a Frito pie. We'll watch some football. We'll forget all about it. And so what I've been praying instead is that the Holy Spirit will take this passage and he will move our needle ever so slightly that we will think more clearly, we will feel more deeply about this Jesus. We will begin to ever increasingly believe, just like his disciples, that we will increasingly view Jesus the way God views Jesus and that he will be central and that he will be core and he will consume every thought we have that he will occupy the very centrality of our lives, that we will love him more and more. That in our lives between the Sundays, he will be more beautiful and more believable because that's what this world needs. Jesus is the temple. This is not the temple and we are the temple. What a dignifying grace that we get to be associated with the presence of God in this world. 
And so, may we worship. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for Jesus, for who he is, for what you have done in him to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And Father, I pray this morning if there's anyone here who does not know you, who is still trying to slug it out on their own accomplishments, achievements, abilities, that you will lead them by your Holy Spirit into a saving knowledge of your Son, that they will come to agree that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they will give to your Son all of their sin, all of their unrighteousness, and they will receive in exchange all of his righteousness and glory. And they will step out of darkness into light, out of death into life, and that they will believe. And for the rest of us, Father, who have been believers for a very long time, I pray, God, by your Spirit, through your Word, among these, your people, that you, would move, that you would move the needle for every single one of us to view Jesus more accurately, more clearly, more deeply, that we would love him ever increasingly because you could not possibly love us more than you do in this moment. So Father, we ask that you would continue to speak, walk with us through this week, and help us to be seen and known as worshipers because you are worth that. We pray all these things in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.